Hello, my name is Christopher Kakuyo Sensei, and I am the practice leader of the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship. Our fellowship is made up of folks from all walks of American life. We are an American Buddhist Sangha. Our fellowship is lay-led, all-inclusive, non-discriminating, and transsectarian Sangha, influenced by the Pure Land Buddhist tradition and the teachings of Gyome and Koyo Kabose. Our organization focuses on the universal teachings of Gautama Buddha, the historical Buddha, and the mythic Buddha, Amida. Our approach follows the teachings of the Way of Oneness, a unique form of American Buddhism developed by Venerable Reverend Gyome Kabose, based on Shin Buddhist tenets. What you are about to hear are some Dharma talks from our local fellowship gatherings. Also, we want to invite you to our summer retreat, which is August 19th through 21st. Tickets are available on our website, saltlakebuddhist.org. Enjoy the Dharma talk. Uh, Welcome to today's Dharma talk. And today's Dharma talk is entitled Going for Refuge. Going refuge or taking refuge in the Buddha. So um, every year, just before retreat, um, for the past three or four years, uh, we, we've done this as, as a tradition that we talk about going or taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha before we go to retreat in preparation for those who, who want to um, formally uh, or traditionally become a Buddhist. I mean, you can just say you're a Buddhist, that's fine. You don't have to do this. Um, but this has been the tradition for 2,500 years uh, with all our uh, Buddha ancestors and, and followers uh, through the generations. And it's one of the things that connect us to the very beginning of Buddhism is this uh, taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And, and I want to talk about this idea of refuge, first of all, and then um, we're going to talk about what and how what it looks like, I guess, to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and some thoughts about that. Um, so, <clears throat> so when someone goes to refuge or takes the three uh, the three jewels, I believe uh, what Rachel referred to. Um, when we say going for refuge, we're talking about going for refuge or taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So traditionally, the Buddha is Shakyamuni Buddha, who is the historical Buddha. The Dharma are the teachings, not that the Buddha created, but he discovered as the basis of reality. And then the Sangha, or the community of believers. And these three together, not individually, but together, are what constitute going for or taking refuge. Um, Also to in other traditions, you can take refuge in other Buddhas, not just the historical Buddha. In Pure Land Buddhism and Jodo Shinshu Buddhism, when when Jodo, Jodo Shinshu say they take refuge in the Buddha, they are referring to both the historical Buddha and the mythic Amida Buddha or Buddha Amida and they take refuge in both. So let's talk about the three jewels, the three legs of a stool. 
And I think for most Westerners, when we first come to the Dharma, we come to the Dharma uh, through uh, books. For most of us, it's books. The books by Thich Nhat Hanh, the books by Shunra Suzuki, the books by Joseph Epstein, the books by Pema Chodron, to name just a few. And so a lot of times we come to the Dharma first through the teaching because of the plethora of books that are out there. And then maybe the Buddha. And usually the last one that we come to is the, the Sangha or the community of followers. So what is the idea behind this going for or taking refuge? So I want to share something from uh, Dogen. Dogen is the father of Japanese Zen. And he says in his masterpiece work, Shobo Genzo, what it is about this taking refuge. Someone once asked a master, why do we take refuge in these three treasures? The master answered, because in the long run, by doing so, that is, taking the three refuges acts like a suit of armor to protect us from whatever attacks us spiritually. On taking refuge in the three treasures, these three treasures are what we return. They can help us sentient beings free ourselves from the delusions of life and death and realize the great awakening. This is why we take refuge in them. End quote. Again, this is something that Buddhists have been doing and sharing since the very beginning. Become a formal follower of the Buddhist is really straightforward. And uh, we say the following words every Sunday when we do our refuge affirmation and prayer. Buddham Sevanam Gachami. Dhamman Sedanam Gachami, Sangam Sedanam Gachami, which in translation is, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. So what does that mean? First of all, like I said earlier, all of these threes are interdependent and are moving forward in our practice and practicing the way. All three, all three inform one another. All three combine to give refuge. You can almost look at it as a pyramid, and you're trying to be in that pyramid, and each one gives you that wall to protect you. But if we have only one of them, we leave ourselves vulnerable. Um, it is not sufficient to just have the Dharma as a refuge, or just the Sangha as a refuge or just the Buddha as a refuge. If we do, it's simply incomplete. It's lacking. The idea of going for refuge or finding refuge is even more poignant right now. Considering all the mass migrations we see of populations fleeing for their lives, for their children's lives, leaving because of violence, economic collapse, and even more troubling environmental degradation and global warming. As the Buddha taught in the fire sermon, the world is on fire, and now it actually is in a very slow, methodical burn. We have no 
hope for escape until we escape the slow burning of our own delusions, our habituated ways of thinking and being that have caused the situation we found ourselves in. As someone who runs from a burning building seeks safety, we must run to escape the fire of our delusional thinking and our challenges with greed, desire, attachment, and ignorance. An important lesson is that refugees are not others. It's not just them. They don't just come from other countries. All of us are refugees. In this context of the Dharma, we are all refugees needing refuge. So what does it mean to take refuge? I think of refuge as being a condition of safety, of being sheltered from pursuit, danger, suffering. It is a place where one can be vulnerable, open, pliable. Safe is a homecoming of sorts. In Buddhism, it's similar. Going for refuge is not just a coming home to a safer space, but more importantly, it is a coming home to being, coming home to ourselves. I appreciate these lines from a Tibetan teacher where he teaches, quote, a refugee is someone who leaves a country or homeland because life is no longer tenable there. When you take refuge, you are acknowledging that a life based on habituated patterns is no longer tenable for you. You are prepared to set out into the mystery and rely on awareness wherever it may lead you. End quote. In going for refuge, we do not come out of the world per se so much as we we come out of our habituated ways of thinking and being. It's coming out of our reactivity and our perpetual story-making. I have come to realize that as spiritual refugees, as refugees of the heart, as refugees of the heart, we have wandered through careers, relationships, self-help books, materialism, addictions, all in a desperate attempt to just come home for some kind of refuge. And unfortunately, each of them have given risen to only disappointment. As Americans, I believe that we suffer from a deep-seated sense of homelessness, always guarded, rarely vulnerable, stiff as if though we are already dead. I appreciate these lines from Thich Nhat Hanh. Taking refuge is the recognition and the determination to head towards what is most beautiful, truthful, and good. Taking refuge is also the awareness that one has the capacity to understand and love. End quote. So going for refuge is not hiding from the world, avoiding pain, closing our eyes, 
to the suffering of others. Still, our first step, breaking the endless cycle of self-imposed suffering, is opening our eyes and hearts to who we really are and learning to understand and love who we are right now, just as you are. No longer seeking refuge in the stories we've created about who we are or need to be, or others have created about who we are and we need to be. Not taking refuge in those any longer. But instead taking refuge in the innate luminosity that we find through our practice of the Buddha way. Before I go on, I do want to take a minute to talk about what we do not take refuge in. Our tradition is different than some other traditions. In our tradition, we do not take refuge in our teachers. I love Reverend Coyle, but I didn't take refuge in Reverend Coyle. I love Reverend Coyle's teachings. I did not take, re I did not take refuge in Reverend Coyle. The reason why from a, a Pure Land inspired tradition is that we realize that we're all foolish beings. We're all ordinary beings. We're all deluded. In our tradition, teacher does not mean guru or master. As Shinran described himself, it means nothing more than a ball-headed fool and one who is aware of their foolishness and delusions and who works from that starting point. In our tradition of lay ministers and teachers, we are where we are because of our studentship first and foremost and have no claim to awakening, no special authority or Dharma transmission. They are examples simply of studentship, nothing more, or someone practicing from their delusions as best they can. This is an important distinction being a lay-led Sangha, and it is vastly different from being led by ordained ministers or masters or gurus. In our Sangha, we are all teachers and students of the way. In our fellowship, all students, no masters. So now I wanna talk about going to refuge to the Buddha. And so I know that for some of us, going for refuge to the Buddha can be a little challenging especially since we've left our previous traditions, which tended to be theistic. Um, and we, we like the Buddha, but really it's the Dharma, it's mindfulness, it's meditation. We like the Sangha, but it's really mindful meditation. Uh, or it's, I really like the Sangha, um, mindfulness is great, Buddha is great, but I really love the Sangha. It tends to be that way for us, especially Westerners who've come out of a, spiritual tradition, who are refugees, so to speak, from our Judeo-Christian traditions. And I think many of us, myself included, having left our previous tradition, keep the Buddha at arm's length. Our Buddha tattoos, pictures in our house, our statues, um, 
become more social and cultural signifiers than any real meaningful representations towards practice. I know many of you, myself included, feel a deep connection to the teachings, a deep connection to the Sangha. Still at times with the Buddha, there's this odd ambivalence, or at least a distance, keeping the Buddha in the realm of the conceptual or historical, lest he becomes some kind of deity. And to me, it's interesting how we can talk effusely about movie stars and musicians and writers and sports figures and how we love them. We can bond with characters in our favorite TV shows or novels. And when they die, we mourn, we actually shed tears. Or when they finally hook up with their love interest, we cheer, maybe even out loud. But when I say, I love the Buddha, people look at me suspiciously. I didn't think Buddhism was a religion. Well, just because I love the Buddha, it doesn't mean Buddhism is a religion. It just means I love the Buddha. So I think by keeping this distance from the Buddha, we miss out on something. We miss out on the Buddha's personality, temperament, and example. We miss uh, an innate human connection to the one that is the most fully and realized of humans. Um, and at times I struggle with this too. I think it's a little bit left over of my post-religious stress disorder. And yet, even so that's true, there are times that I feel so connected to both the historical Buddha, and for me in some ways, even more so to the mythical Buddha Amida, that, that I have such a connection at times that I have found tears in my eyes when I've washed the statued face of the Buddha, when we were in Vitalize and doing our spring cleaning, I know it's a statue. It's not that it's the statue. It's what the Buddha, what the statue of the Buddha represents. It represents awakening, freedom, liberation, compassion, love, patience, acceptance, groundedness. I have found that my practice during those times is easier and more natural. I am easier to get along with. And I think maybe it's easier for me to imagine what it means to be like a Buddha. The other times when I feel very disconnected from the Buddha or the Buddha feels like nothing more than some dusty figure of history, my practice becomes more challenging if I'm practicing at all. And I want to share something that I appreciate from a teacher named Sabuti of the Tritiana tradition. Uh, Sabuti writes about this idea of reimagining the Buddha and how we need to try to imagine the Buddha and his enlightenment in a way to intellectually and emotionally stir us to practice. Now, why emotionally? Well, our practice is not just a practice of the mind, but of the heart-mind. In Chinese kanji, the symbol for heart and mind are the same symbol. There's no difference. In Chinese philosophy, 
there is no idea. There is nothing independent of thought without accompanying feeling. There's no feeling without accompanying thought. There is no compassion in the absence of intellect. No heart without mind, no mind without heart. I think the challenge that we have in the West is we, we make this very definite space between the two. Our connection to the Buddha generally is intellectual, but it can also be emotional at the same time. And this helps us mobilize our energy to, first of all, go for refuge, but also to practice in some of the most challenging times and places. How do we do this? For us who have and will be taking refuge, he writes this. This is Sabuti again. How do we reimagine the Buddha? He says, quote, we carry only, we can only imagine the Buddha wholeheartedly by discovering his, her image in our mind, inspired and supported by the images around us. Images of this kind cannot be ordered or devised. They must live and grow, and like plants, they must emerge from their own natural environments, the psyche of the individual in which they appear, end quote. So he's talking about something beyond our traditional images of the Buddha. Our traditional images of the Buddha, Buddha statues, the Enzo and Zen, even the Nambutsu scroll, which is behind me in Pure Land tradition, can be a starting point. But they're not ours. We borrow them from other cultures. Sabuti so says these are our starting point, but he says that we, Westerners, are embarked on a long and difficult journey to discover the image of the Buddha within themselves. So, in our fellowship and in our Dharma talks, we have repeatedly talked that just because I know something cognitively or intellectually doesn't mean that I'm going to do anything about it. I conceptually understand impermanence, but has it changed my life? No, I still act as if though I'm immortal. I still act as if death happens to someone else. I get impermanence, but it doesn't change me. I don't identify with it. Uh, Habua Nineda said that what made the Buddha the Buddha is that the Buddha identified with impermanence. It was real to him. So all the other petty stuff that consumes our mind and our heart and our time for the Buddha were not there because he identified with impermanence. It wasn't just a conceptual acknowledgement in his mind, but it was a whole part of his being. And I really believe and really want to encourage all of us that it's through the imaginal capacity that we can bring the conceptual understanding of our minds into our heart. It's the heart mind. It's the two together. It's the intellectual and the emotional and the imaginal capacity makes that possible. Imaginal is a powerful intellectual and emotional skill and ability. Albert Einstein said that the imagination was the most important uh, capacity of human beings. and was how he was able to come up with his discoveries in physics.
Finding living images of the Buddha around us is uh, an an imaginal practice, closer to magic than science. But here's a paradox warning. That said, in some ways, we don't even take refuge in the Buddha as a person. I love this from Thesano, uh, Thesanro Bhikkhu. Quote, To take refuge in the Buddha means not taking refuge in him just as a person, but taking refuge in the fact of his awakening, placing trust in the belief that he actually awakened to the truth, that he did so by developing qualities that we too can develop and that the truths in which he awoke provide the best perspective for conduct in our lives, end quote. So we're not taking refuge in some dusty historical teacher, some pre-kit speaking pontificator, or some ancient self-help Indian Socrates. We are taking refuge in his awakening. One of the ways this awakening becomes meaningful to us is through, as Subhuti goes on to say, quote, discovering his image in our own minds, inspired and supported by the images around us that emerge from our natural environments and the psyches of the individuals in which they appear. Discovering and and feeling closer to the Buddha as, as as the first one who awakened, the image is boundless. Any image that works with you to connect you to this idea, to this, this mythic representation of awakening called Buddha or Buddha Amida. We each will find and discover our own image, one that works for us to connect us on a more emotional level to the Buddha. For me, um, I have a few. And my, the first one comes from, of course, Reverend Kabose Sensei, Gyome Kabose Sensei, where he says, quote, in Namo Amida Butsu, we see and feel the Buddha everywhere and in everything. Life itself becomes the unfolding of Buddha, end quote. So for me, I'm able to imagine or see the Buddha go to refuge in the Buddha that I see in the natural world unfolding around me. And for me, it's not just the Buddha, but an imaginal connection to the Buddhas. I can see the Buddha unfolding in all of my life. The other image for me, where I see and feel the Buddha, is in the morning sun, the, the, the rising sun. And that's probably because of my association with Bright Dawn, being a Bright Dawn lay minister. And Reverend Gyome Kabose Sensei, his Dharma name, Gyome, means bright or brightening dawn. So um, when I wake up early in the morning and I watch the sun rise over the mountains, um, quite often I'll say, Namo Amida Butsu. And for me, that is... Uh, my image of the Buddha, to feel connected to the Buddha. Same thing in the setting sun. And for me, the setting sun is Amitabha Buddha, uh, setting in the West. And there's 
one other one. Well, wait, let me, uh, one other thing. The Tambutsuge, which is a poem, a poem that is from one of the Pure Land Sutras that Reverend Gyome Kabose uh, said was one of the reasons he dedicated his life to be a, uh, a Buddhist minister. Um, and there's one line that I really love. And uh, it's the opening line of the poem that describes the face of the Buddha. And I think that's why uh, the sun always reminds me of it. And if I could, oh, there we go. Your radiant face like a mountain peak catching the first burst of morning light has awesome and unequal majesty. So because of that line in the poem and the sun rising, that's my own personal image of the Buddha that makes me feel connected. It, it works for me. The last image that works for me is uh, one from the Flower Ornament Sutra. And if you've never read it, it's like an acid trip. Uh, it's an amazing book. Um, but in there, there's a line about every atom. In every atom, there is a Buddha sitting full lotus in meditation. And for some reason, that image really helps feel me connected, that all this is about oneness and interdependence and interconnectedness. So I challenge you to find yours. What is your image that connects you to the Buddha on a deeper, more emotional level than simply a historical character from years gone by? So when we take refuge in the Buddha, each of us, we're going to do it in our own way. There's no right way to do it. And I appreciate this from Tara Brock. Tara Brock says, quote, the first step in this practice, taking refuge in the Buddha, may be approached on various levels. And we can choose the way that's most meaningful to our particular temperament. We might, for instance, take refuge in the historical Buddha or a mythic Buddha, the human being who attained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree 2,500 years ago. This doesn't mean that we are worshiping the man who became enlightened or setting him up as an other, but bowing and honoring the Buddha nature, the nature of his awakening that exists in all of us. I like that line about our particular temperament. And I think that's good about our community because within our community, it ranges from people who are more devotional and emotional in their practice with the Buddha and those who are agnostic or atheistic and it's all about philosophy. Both can live together because what draws us together is not what we believe, but our desire to follow the Buddha way. Maybe for many of us, the image of the Buddha already inside us is the image that resonates with us, our Buddha nature. Buddha nature is uh, a part and one of the most beautiful parts to me in Mahayana Buddhism. I like this from Ajahn Amaro, who echoes Tara Brock, and he is a Theravadan teacher. He says, quote, as you know, the word Buddha means one who is awake. So taking refuge in Buddha is taking refuge in those awake parts of you. It means making an effort to bring mindfulness into every moment, end quote. And here's the thing that I love about Buddhism even more is it's paradoxical in nature. All teachings are what are called in Buddhism, upaya. 
or skillful means. So to take us to an even deeper level of understanding and realization. So it's not about, well, this teaching is right, this teaching is wrong. It's more, this teaching is upaya and this teaching is upaya. They're both skillful to bring us to a point of deeper understanding. In Buddhism, the teachings are often called the raft. The raft, the teaching, whatever teaching that may be, that gets us to the other side of suffering or gets us to a deeper level of understanding, once we are on the other side, does it make sense to keep carrying the raft? The Buddha said in the Pali Canon, quote, in the same way, monks, I have taught the Dharma as compared to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to. Understanding the Dharma as taught compared to a raft, you should let it go, end quote. It's a simple distinction between goal and means. The goal is to get across the river. The means is the raft. Once you get across the river, carrying the raft with you as you keep on your journey is simply a burden and of no use. Going for refuge in the Buddha is the same. Going refuge and finally being able to be grounded to open up and get a taste of our Buddha nature is to help us realize that ultimately we don't really need a home or even security because our true nature is boundlessness because our true home is oneness. Whatever your practice is, we seek to follow the Buddha's examples going for refuge, taking refuge is at heart this simple aspiration. I like these words from Thich Nhat Hanh and I appreciate his image and heart and his explanation. For me, they're an intersection of this devotional way of looking at the teachings and a more secular expression for going for refuge. He says, quote, the Buddha is one who shows us the way in this life. The Buddha is the historical person who lived 2,600 years ago and all of our ancestral teachers who connect us to the Buddha. The Buddha is also the awakened nature and all beings. The Buddha is each element in the universe that shows us the way of love and understanding. The open look of a child and the ray of sunshine causing the flower to unfold her beauty also contain the awakened nature. Reverend Gilme and Thich Nhat Hanh were Dharma brothers, and when I read this, I hear again, life itself becomes the unfolding of Buddha. So for today's Dharma talk, I want to close with a poem I wrote about going for refuge to the Buddha, taking refuge in the Buddha. And I wrote this poem as a way to connect an imaginal practice for me to connect with the Buddha on a more personal level. The Buddha is so much more than simply a historical character. He is so much more than um, some Socratic help, help uh, 
um, uh, what do you call it, uh, self-help guru. He's so much more than that. Um, and this practice was one of the ways that I was able to connect even closer. The Buddha. The Buddha and I are dependent on each other's awakening. The Buddha and I are one. And like a flitting butterfly in a bamboo grove, today, to the Buddha's lap, I return. Namo Amida Mutsu. Okay, I'd like to turn the time over to the rest of you. We have some time to share any thoughts, any questions. And if anybody is thinking about taking refuge uh, at retreat, you can attend the whole retreat, which I would encourage if you can. If you can't, you can just come Saturday to do your Tisarana. Um, this year, we're going to simply be doing Going for Refuge. For those that want to do Bodhisattva vows and precepts, we're going to do those at a different time. Um, but please, if, if, you, if this is something that you've been thinking about, reach out to me. We can talk about it. Hopefully, the Dharma talks over the next uh, three weeks, today and the next two weeks, will help. Uh, maybe help you with that decision and, and what you would like to do. But please, uh, let us know. Uh, the, time, the time is yours. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, I just wanted to remark, um, repeat, I like that, that line in your poem, like a flitting butterfly in the Buddha's lap, I return. Um, it evokes an emotion for me that it's like that sense of, you know, the ebb and flow of, of awakening moments in our lives and how sometimes, you know, we go into that distant, you know, place of not being very present with with that kind of awakening and then something like the symbol of the buddha or something important to us or something happens it brings us back and there's that kind of moment of aha and then we feel that rise into awakening and how cool that is but i just i love the feeling and the visual of the flitting butterfly in the buddha's lap and and i return and how the butterflies dance everywhere and like my mind and heart and body dance everywhere like flitting <laughs> and then and then to return into that calm sitting just the visual of a buddha waiting waiting for us to just kind of settle back in whether it's a statue or a memory or a being or something but so it's a lot to think about so uh, thank you I'm curious if uh, if anybody has a kind of a, a connection, a deep connection with the, the Buddha that they would like to share, um, or resistance uh, because of our post-religious stress disorder that we carry with us. 
Hi, Christopher. I um, I wanted to say thank you for today's Dharma talk, especially I spent my whole run this morning before practice um, thinking about going for refuge because I've been thinking about that a lot and especially how much hesitation I have with going to the Buddha specifically. Dharma Sangha, great. Got it. <laughs> love it. All about it. Buddha, though, much more resistant. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that for me is because I see the Buddha as the wisdom and think that they are and things as their true nature. That's my concept of the Buddha. And for me, that's hard because that concept doesn't allow for me to pull any of my shenanigans, doesn't allow me to hide, doesn't allow me to run. Um, and that's where my struggle is. Mm. And so it's just funny that I literally just spent my whole morning thinking about this. And that's exactly what you talked about. And I still have that hesitation. Um, that's not gone, but it's definitely something that I'm looking in the face of. And that I'm um, trying to access my Buddha nature in the sense of looking at things as they are and um, seeing reality and um, not letting myself hide but still struggling with it, still mm -hmm. working on it, but great Dharma talk and just read my mind yeah. as always. Thank you. Thank you. I'm all the Thank you. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> Isn't it interesting what we carry with us when we leave our old tradition? You know, we finally freed ourselves from this dictatorial God. And, and now it's, it's like getting divorced and hating men or hating women, you know, because once I was hurt before. And you know what? There might be some wisdom in that, at least for a while. Um, but at the same time, I, I want to encourage you that, that we don't let what happened in our previous tradition hold us back. Now, um, in, in, Part of my practice is visual art, and a lot of my visual art is nembutsu, nembutsu art. So I, I put the namo amida butsu kanji in different collages, and um, and for me, amida Buddha is not literal. There is no big Buddha in the western sky, some billion light years out there. He doesn't. <laughs> he's not literal, um, but he's real for me. He she's real for me. And I have an emotional connection to the myth. I'm fine with it. I don't, I don't worry about it not being real. And at the same time, the paradox that for me, it informs my practice to give me that intellectual and emotional desire to follow the way and to face my own delusions and fears and blind spots and poor behavior and whatever not. And there's a freedom that comes from that, but it takes time. We have to deal with that woundedness that we have. I know that most of us gave up the, the, the magic stuff of our you know, early childhood and believing that God's going to do this and God's going to do that. But it doesn't mean we have to throw out that deeper connection that we can feel uh, towards something like the Buddha. Um, everything flows from the Buddha. 
the Dharma flows from the Buddha, the Sangha flows from the Buddha, the teachings flow from the Buddha. So it's just something to think about. <laughs> I was just thinking, do you have a personal relationship with Buddha? <laughs> Is that like having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? <laughs> How many people twitched? <laughs> Could could I try to share maybe a, a little bit different perspective? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I I wasn't raised with any kind of religion. Um, certainly, I was exposed to it. I went to Sunday school with you know some of my friends as I was growing up. But unlike most people, I think especially in Utah, religion wasn't even a part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um. I can totally identify with um, like the, uh, the escapism that you kind of mentioned in our culture, like TV, you know, material stuff, our phones, you know, video games. Um, and unfortunately for me, alcohol has been a big one. Um, and while I identify with, all of those materialistic sort of westernized cultural things, I don't find my resistance to um, the Buddha or, or any of the teachings to be from a, well, for me is more of a place of skepticism. Like I see, you, you know, I can, I can distract myself with TV, but to sit with my emotions and offer myself compassion is like I don't it's challenging I'm unsure if it'll work like I I don't know if I'm doing it right like I I, that's where my resistance Mm -hmm. comes in and um, unfortunately I'm actually in a situation right now where I'm really um, long story short I hurt my partner pretty deeply um, with some of my words and actions and where I would normally try to escape what I'm feeling and beat myself up and just like, you are a terrible person and you deserve this suffering. I'm really just trying to feel these emotions and understand what they're telling me and, and take that as motivation for self-improvement to offer myself compassion for the mistakes I've made. It seems really, I don't say it's not what I'm used to, Um, but I'm pretty determined this time to follow through and stick with it. And um, I have a great therapist that will um, help me. Yeah. (laughs) So um, just maybe that offers a little bit different perspective. And um, thanks for this space. Thanks for the talk. And thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Cassandra. Thank you for sharing. Okay, we're coming to the top of the hour. Are there any final questions or comments before we move on?
I wanted to say something real quick about when I went for refuge. Yes. About, I was very reluctant to, to do it. And the reason being was I didn't think I could live up to it. And I realized right before I finally gave in and said, okay, I'm going to do this, that you can just begin again every day, every hour, every minute. You make mistakes, you can do it wrong, and it's all okay. So I encourage people, if they're thinking about it and if they're afraid of doing it, that they can look past some of those fears and go for it. That's all. Thank you, Sharon. Okay, let's go to our practice manual. Go to page 29, fellowship closing. Oh, just 27, sorry, 27 fellowship closing. I believe I got an old book. The last one. I just used the last one. <clears throat> okay. And you are closing. May the merit of this ceremony adorn the Buddha's pure lands, bring forth the fourfold kindnesses, and relieve the suffering of life's paths. As we leave and conclude this gathering, we surround all people and all forms of life with infinite love and compassion. May the sound of this bell ring throughout the universe, awakening all beings to joy and equanimity. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings awaken to the light of Amida Buddha. May all beings be free. Namo Amida Butsu. Namo Amida Butsu. Okay, so. Uh, little bit of song of business we have retreat coming up retreat is coming up really soon it's the 19th and um our so where, where we were last year and where we are this year are very different in in uh people that are going to attend so if there is anything that is um maybe making you hesitant to attend or you just haven't made up your mind yet, or anything that you would like to share or talk about, please reach out to me or any of the board of trustee members. You can reach us at info at saltlakebuddhist.org. You can reach out directly to us. Um, and then we could, we could just talk about it. Um, we wanna make sure we have a, a good and safe retreat. So if there is any hesitation or any concerns that you may have, please speak up and let us know so we can address those concerns and so we can have um, a well-attended and um, positive uh, transformative retreat, okay? Um, in addition to that, uh, for those who are on Facebook, and if you're on Facebook very often, 
please go to Facebook uh, because we do have a um, survey monkey up uh, regarding our meeting in person. And what we want to do is we want to get a pulse of the community uh, when it comes to wearing masks during our in-person gatherings. Um, and there is a survey monkey. We've had about 20 people answer already. The more information, the more uh, of your input we can get from you, the, um, the better it will be for us as a board. Uh, to decide on how we're going to move forward in meeting in person and what our COVID mitigations are going to be. Okay. So you don't get on Facebook often, please go to Facebook, please complete the survey. Uh, in addition, uh, we will be meeting downtown. And so we have a new spot for our Dharma coffee. Uh, Rachel, you want to say a word about it? Sure thing. Um, actually, if you want to meet today, we are meeting on Zoom, and you can yes, find that on our website or on our um, on Facebook. I would imagine it's at twelve thirty. Um, as far as next week, we will start meeting in person at um, the People's Coffee, and this is just a block away from where we're meeting. It's on two hundred, and we can all walk over together there and have our coffee there. Um, I'm excited to try this space out and see what it's like. So I'd love to see you today on Zoom and next week in person. Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Also, too, we will be putting another Survey Monkey up uh, in a little bit to get uh, your kind of your feeling if you want to continue to do Dharma Coffee alternating Zoom in person, Zoom in person. Um, and then, um, or if you want to do do it all like together. So we'll put that out uh, for you to look and to be able to give us your opinion and see where you're coming from. Okay. Um, in addition, uh, there was an old spreadsheet that we used a couple of years ago uh, to help build a uh, email list for the community. Um, I'll be posting that up again. So keep an eye out for that on Facebook. And uh, if, if you want us to have your email address, if you don't, don't. But if you do, please fill in the information. Uh, there will also be some information on do you want to volunteer, what kind of things you like to volunteer for. As we start moving back in person, um, we'll start doing other activities like that. Also potlucks and things that are fun. Okay. Um, any other business? Uh, parking on next Sunday, uh, there is off-street parking because it's Sunday, so no meters on Sunday, uh, so you can park off the street. There's also a parking at the City Creek um, uh, Mall, the outdoor mall, and a map will be posted for you to know how to get there. It's two hours free parking, um, and then after that, I think it's $2.00. Uh, so that's a good place to park. Also, too, there's a place in the back where you can drop people off. You can carpool. You can take tracks right downtown, a block away from where we're going to be meeting. Uh, so you can make it a brunch and tracks day and help Mother Earth. Okay. Um, morning meditation. How's morning meditation going, Sharon? It is going every day. <laughs> so we still have. Morning meditation, 7 a.m. every weekday morning, 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. 
everyone is welcome. The links are still there on the website, on Facebook. So come and join us for that, that space, that time. Even if you can't stay for compassionate sharing, we do a little 20-minute meditation and a, a little morning ritual. So, so come and join us every morning, any morning. Yay, thank you. Okay, any book other... Any, book, yeah. book group. Yes. So Tuesday, we're in our third week. Even if you don't have the book, if you haven't come before, join us for Haiku Mind. So those links are out there as well. And it's really a lot of fun and sharing haikus and reading others and listening. So come join us on Tuesday. Yay. Look forward to seeing you there. And uh, we, had a, we had a great group last, last time. Hopefully we even get more of you and then we might even do a, um, a fellowship uh, compilation of haiku. Wouldn't that be fun? Okay. Wonderful. Uh, any other announcements from the community, from the board members, anything like that? Okay. So, uh, T. Serana, going for refuge. If you want to go for refuge, um, please uh, reach out to me. Let me know so we can make plans for you um, and let you know uh, kind of the process. Um, it's uh, it's really a, a beautiful ceremony that we do, and we do it up in the Uinta Mountains. It's a beautiful place to do it. So um, if you haven't, also too, if anybody's done on refuge somewhere else to a different community, or it's been years since you've gone for refuge, and you would like to do it again, please, you can reach out to me too, and we can make that happen at um, our summer retreat. Also, summer retreat tickets are available. Cost should never be a reason that anyone in our community does not attend the fellowship. Go and look. There is what you can pay option. There are tickets available and uh, also work opportunities. If all you can afford is $10, $50, whatever it is, you can attend our retreat. We consider ourselves a blue collar retreat. So um, don't ever let money keep you from attending. Okay. And on that note, have a beautiful Sunday. Namo Amida Butsu. Namo Amida Butsu.